As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic's Football GM Podcast. And now, The Athletic's Mike Sando and former NFL Executive of the Year, Randy Muir. Welcome to the Football GM Podcast. Mike Sando here, senior writer from The Athletic, along with Randy Mueller. Randy, how you doing this morning? Doing great, Mike. Glad to be back. Yep, we got some good stuff for everybody today. Of course, we watched the Patriots-Jets on Monday night. We have some takeaways not only on the game, but just the idea of tanking and the implications there. The Seattle defense, man, how the mighty have fallen. We're going to talk about them today. Coach of the Year candidates, I think it's a fun subject just because we can talk about really what makes a good coach. What are we looking for in the second half of the season? Uh, So we've got quite a bit to talk about there. Our Ask the GM segment today, good question about Baker Mayfield. We can expand on that just into a little bit of team building. So we are going to dive in, though, and start with the Patriots-Jets game last night. It was weird, actually, to see the Jets scoring points. I was looking at their points per drive. They ended up losing the game, but points per drive was, like I think, the highest of the Gase era, Um, which is not, you know, it's not the Don Shula era in Miami or anything like that, but um, they actually had came to life a little bit. They had some talent on the field at wide receiver, and we actually had a close game, but the Jets end up losing. Their quest for 0-16 is still on the table. They're trying to win, but Randy, that game last night, there's a lot of avenues to it, um, just in terms of the competitive nature of the game, and then the fallout of the game, too, with uh, these two teams being in the same division, Trevor Lawrence possibly being at stake, which could affect that division for years to come. What were your takeaways off of Jets and Patriots? A couple things jumped out at me, Mike. Obviously, I don't think it aesthetically was maybe the most pleasing game to watch, but I can also appreciate what both teams are are trying to do. The other thing that that struck me was, and there's a lot of sinister plots (laughs) <laughs> you know, simmering around in everybody's uh, household about who's doing what and, and the ideas behind it. I really think these teams are both trying to do everything they can to win a game. I, I harken back to 
my last year with the Dolphins, uh, I was unfortunately part of a 1-15 team. And I know the toll that took on us during that season. I think we lost six or seven games by three points or less. And I found myself thinking of that season when, when the Jets really have this game tucked away for the most part, uh, 20 to, to 10 at halftime. And it slowly just kind of leaks away and, and New England comes back on them and wins the game. But having been a part of that, the drain that it takes on the, Joe Douglas's of the world or Adam Gase's of the world of, of not winning a game that gets old and it gets, uh, heavy. It's a heavy load that you take to work every day in trying to find a way to win a game. And I remember, I remember that year I'm talking about with the Dolphins. We didn't get our first win till week 12. And believe it or not, there were tears in the locker room after that win. That's how big of a deal it is. And it's an emotional, gut-wrenching grind every Sunday for these games, for these decision makers and players in- included. And that's what I felt last night is I just felt bad for the Jets because, like you say, they had done some things offensively for the first time. They actually had come after uh, Cam Newton and put pressure on him and actually put together a pretty good game plan that that – they were able to execute because they had some playmakers on the field for the first time in a while. And then to come up short at the end of the night made it uh, kind of gut-wrenching for me. And so I kind of see it from the eyes of of those that uh, kind of put those teams on the field. And and uh, it's an up-and-down roller coaster three hours. And I used to equate it to three hours in the, de- in the dentist chair, to be honest with you. And that's that's what I felt for the Jets last night. Yeah, and I think, you know, big picture, you hear a lot of people talk all the time about, okay, they should tank or they should try to lose. And I think it was clear in the game last night, neither team's doing that. I mean, they're right. scraping and clawing. Yep. Uh, at the end of the first half, if you if the Jets were tanking, then they don't go in their two-minute offense with a minute and a half left and go down the field for a touchdown, right? right. I mean, they, they're really trying. They're calling timeouts. They're challenging plays. They're yep. doing all the things you would do um, in a game to try to win it no matter what. Um, yep. And and then with Belichick, I mean, I was kind of joking around on Twitter last night. Uh, by the way, you can find me at Sando NFL. You can find Randy at Randy Mueller underscore. But, you know, Belichick has people to the point with his kind of mystique that, you know, when his teams are bad, people think it's on purpose. Like people think he has this ulterior motive that they are going right. to. Uh, <laughs> this is all part of this master plan for him to keep the Jets from getting the top pick or or for him to get a higher pick and try to steal away Trevor Lawrence. And that's not at all, at all, what's happening during the game. I mean, they're, they're going for it on fourth down, or they're trying to score a touchdown right to the very last minute of the game. So the idea of tanking Randy, it can be done in a big picture. Like, I think the way that Miami um, tore down last year had an element of that to it. I mean, you're, you're taking a big picture view of we're going to get rid of some pieces. We may not be as good right away, but we're going to build it up the right way. But during the season, I can't think of that happening. Yeah, you know what I, I mean? I, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think there's an element of rebuild for sure. And how far you tear it down to rebuild is under some scrutiny and question year in and year out with a team or two. But even in Miami's case last year with the tanking for Tua, we didn't even know if Tua was the first guy. I mean, so they could say that people were saying they were tanking for a particular player 
who knows if that player ends up being the, the top player on your board. It's being said this year. Is Trevor Lawrence the best? I don't know. Justin Fields might have something to say about that. So you can talk about tanking. I don't think anybody tanks in particular for a player. I do think they rebuild. And I don't think it's anybody's plan necessarily to get the first pick. I just don't think that's a value to anybody. And nobody sitting in these offices that are decision makers have that thought process in mind. I don't think there's a, a, a bigger plot. Now, fans talk about it because they want a high draft pick. It seems like it always comes from the Jets fans, too. They always want a high draft pick, so they want to lose on purpose. Maybe that's the cynical <laughs> East Coast yeah. way. I don't know, but it seems like it comes. Yeah, then they get high draft picks and they pick good players like Jamal Adams and they trade them away. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you know, I don't know what they were doing. You know, you could say, though, I mean, it, heck, if they were tanking this year, what would they have to do differently to be tanking? Because they got rid of their good players. I mean, now, I think you can see with at least the receivers they had on the field yesterday, that made a big difference. So, I, you know, if they have those guys playing and they get Beckton back, I mean, they may win a game. You know, they may win a game or two. Um, you could see that it was possible. I know that it, it wouldn't take. It doesn't take long to look at those faces of those players, particularly a, a Cam Newton or even Joe Flacco, to a point. They're giving it everything they have. They're 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 not thinking about anything but winning the game. Coaches the same way, front office people the same way. So I get a little irritated sometimes. I do hear a lot about tanking, and I've just never said. I've always said. That's not a thing. <laughs> it's really not a thing other than the media coming up with some way to justify bad decisions that a team has made. I just they're all trying their hardest. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Are you convinced that the Seahawks are trying their hardest on defense? Because <laughs> we want to talk about that. We want to talk about the Seahawks today. And Randy, Seattle defense has been a staple of this organization. Pete Carroll brought a culture. Uh, to Seattle as the head coach that really lived through its defense. Not only that, he built a defense from the back forward, right? I mean, an all-time great defense, the best defense of the last 10 years for sure. Legion of Boom. Um, They were unbelievable. They were the Legion of Boomed in Buffalo (laughs) this last week. Uh, Just nothing like what they used to be. And I'm sorry, they, they brought in Jamal Adams. They supposedly had a couple of good older but good linebackers in Bobby Wagner um, and K.J. Wright. They were supposed to be better on the back end. They looked like the worst back end uh, in the entire uh, league. They're on a historic pace for what they're allowing in passing yardage. You can look at any metric, the most basic, the most advanced. It's not good. Right. Um, They've got a potential Hall of Fame quarterback here. They just have to be not horrific on defense to be able to maybe advance and be a Super Bowl team. When you look at them, are you shocked? What do they need? What do you see? What 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 can they do? Well, I'm not shocked. I do think there's been a disconnect over the last few years with how they put it together, that's for sure. They haven't been able to draft any impact players to help them on defense. The ones that they've picked really aren't on the field contributing. The other thing is Pete Carroll made his name by being simplistic on defense. They had long corners that could cover man-to-man. They had longer-framed guys who who could change the throwing angles of quarterbacks that, that were their opposition. He doesn't have that anymore. Last week against against Buffalo, they played 45% some kind of man-to-man coverage. They don't have the people to cover man-for-man. Now, their front seven, and you mentioned some of the linebackers and some of the things they did up front, that was better last week versus Buffalo, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the pass yardage they gave up. So there's a disconnect there as to how they put their team together, and also with the, the kind of defenses they're playing. They're going to have to find a way to get back to what Pete Carroll knows and does. 
Absolutely. And, you know, Pete, we talk about coaches being able to, you know, affect uh, the game in specific ways. And for Pete Carroll, his his uh, forte is a secondary coach. He's got to get this figured out. They're playing Quentin Dunbar the whole game. He looks injured. He can't run. Um, where was the adjustment? What did they do? They had. You're right. They haven't drafted a slew recently, the last six, seven years of top players on defense. But why did they take Jordan Brooks in the first round? He's hard. He's not not playing. He's got some speed for you. Uh, they had Marquise Blair, who was a, a decent pick at safety, weren't playing him. There's been a little reluctance to me to play some younger guys. Now you've acquired Carlos Dunlap. I think that helped your defensive line. You got better production. Uh, Jerron Reed suddenly looked a lot better. So maybe you've got something um, to build around there. Uh, but the rest of your team now. Um, defensively and in the back end and with the secondary is in some shambles. I think they have to get Shaq Griffin back. I think that can help them. Quentin Dunbar's confidence has got to be shot after what happened in this last game against Buffalo. They made Josh Allen look like Dan Fouts or Dan Marino <laughs> or, or Patrick Mahomes back there uh, with really almost no um, resistance. And so, you know, I started looking really at like, okay, how bad are they on defense, and can you go far in the playoffs with a team that's this bad defensively? And just historically, the last 20 years, I don't think so. Right. Because people are going to point to – people can point to the 2006 Colts, okay? They were horrific defensively. They went to the Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. They beat the Bears that year. Peyton Manning obviously was great in 2006, but – they were actually a good defense in the playoffs. People don't know that because Bob Sanders came back and he was a complete difference maker, the type of difference maker that Jamal Adams is going to have to be if they don't leave him in coverage on third and 15 like they did this last week. But <laughs> yeah, that game. was actually one of the best defenses in the postseason that you're ever going to find. People don't know Peyton Manning in those playoffs threw three touchdown passes, seven interceptions. Their defense actually carried them the playoffs. I don't see that in the cards right. for <laughs> Seattle. And that's the worst defense statistically for a regular season that has made it to a Super Bowl in the last 20 years. And it wasn't nearly as bad statistically as this one for Seattle. I know times have changed and all that, and there's more yards to be had. Uh, but something has to change in a hurry, or else they're going to be the team that wasted Russell Wilson. Not only that, Russell Wilson's not going to be the MVP if he has to sling it around and take risks and already has eight interceptions. Right. That's going to go out the window too. So, And they're going to get him hurt. <laughs> I do think it's a little unfair to compare him with the Legion of Boom because that group was pretty special. And we're not going to have uh, Earl Thomas in his uh, top form run out of that tunnel anytime soon. But the one thing that really uh, I think they can do is they can improve their communication. They've made a lot of changes back there. They've got new people in place. They've got people that have been in and out of, in and out of the lineup. Communicating is hard. And that's the thing that secondaries have to do. I think that's a little bit underrated. They've got to find ways to communicate. And that goes back to with what I was saying before. The, the more simple the defense is, the easier it is to communicate it. They haven't been able to make those adjustments. They haven't been able to pass receivers off in zones. They haven't been able to play the man-for-man -man formula like they'd like to because they don't have the, the people in place. So it's a combination of a lot of things. I don't know if they can get it right for this year, but like you said, if they can just be average, they will be fine. I just, I don't know how they can be average at this point. Yep. For me to watch, it's like, this is on Pete Carroll. He just got the extension. He's got to get this fixed. He's the defensive guy, but he's also now completely out of his comfort zones. Okay. Uh, on both sides of the ball, offensively, he wants to run the ball, be physical, limit possessions, be explosive in the pass game. 
Instead, he's got the high-flying circus where, where basically they're throwing the ball all the time, which they should be with their quarterback, but that's not how Pete Carroll's comfortable. Defensively, he's comfortable with zone defense, four-man pressure, mm-hmm. uh, keep it simple, don't bust. Okay. Well, what's he doing? He's having to blitz all the time. He's got which can which could worked for them a little bit early in the year. May be able to work with them for them against some opponents. But you've got to be you have to have some uh, some sort of soundness. So can Pete Carroll with a team that's completely unlike a, how he wants this team to be get the right fixes? Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing to watch, and it really leads us into our next subject, which is um, coaches of the year and, and really what makes a good one. Randy, what is a good coach? What should we look for? What are you when we start talking about coach of the year? What is the template? Well, I think I think it depends on. That's why Baskin has Baskin Robbins has thirty one flavors. Everybody has a little different favorite way to look at it. Um, but I try to make it systematic if possible. You know, when you ask the questions about what what do you want from your coach? What's the criteria that you're judging him on? And and really for the coach of the year factor, it's kind of where are the people in your building and how they have the belief in that coach. And we've talked about a coach um, coming up with a game plan, selling it to the players, and then making a difference on Sunday. Those are the three things that come to my mind, at least when you're talking about a coach of the year candidate. So you've got to have the faith of your players. You've got to have the faith of your locker room. And they have to believe, much like the GM, they have to believe the coach is making the right decisions and can make a difference. Absolutely. And for me, Brian Flores is a is almost an easy choice. I, I do like some of the other jobs that are being done. I think Matt Rule took over a Carolina team that looked like they might be, people were asking if they were tanking, right? And they've been competitive, but they have some good talent, I think, offensively. To me, Brian Flores, on a couple of fronts, fits the bill. Number one, they're five and three, so that you've got a good record, you've been able to win, but you can really see him making, I think, a difference on game day with their blitz packages. I mean, they're a tough team to play against. And me talking to coaches around the league, uh, that's become apparent. They're, they're sort of kind of a hard-nosed team. They're a disciplined team. They schematically do some nice things, like I said, with their blitz packages. They were able to completely flummox um, Jared Goff. Look at, if you would say Sean McVay is one of the better offensive coaches in the league. Well, Brian Flores had the upper hand on him in the game. Cliff Kingsbury doing some nice things um, with Kyler Murray. Well, they get a strip sack and a, and a return early in the game that sets the tone for them and really helps them win the game. That's making a difference on Sunday, I think. Right. No question about it. I think the other thing you got to consider is really the talent level that he has to work with, too. They're in the middle of a rebuild, and he's taking uh, what they have and making it better. So he's he's getting players to to kind of exceed their ceilings, per se, talent-wise, uh, production-wise, and that's a big thing as well. The other thing with regard to Coach Flores is he's probably made the most controversial decision that any coach has made, at least to this point, uh, on the field in when they decided to to replace Fitzpatrick with Tua. That's, you know, widely uh, criticized by most media, a lot of people in football. You and I talked to a lot of people and everybody was kind of shaking their head a little bit. But if that move turns out to be like we think it might be the, this first week or two, that, that move alone is going to give him a lot of traction, a lot of credit toward Coach of the Year in that uh, he's going to do, again, whatever's best for his team. Everybody thinks that's a move when we talked about it on the podcast last week or two weeks ago. That move was for the future. That move was really 
really for now in his mind. It gives them a better chance to win right now than what they were getting with Ryan Fitzpatrick. So a lot of credit to him. You know, there's guys out there with a bigger body of work. I mean, you can always go back to your Sean Payton's or Andy Reid's or Mike Tomlin's. Those guys have a consistent bigger body of work. But in this case, when you're voting for a coach of the year at this point and can only consider this year and also consider the talent levels of your team, my vote would definitely go for Brian Flores. I think he's done more with what he has than everybody else has at this point. Absolutely. I think he would be my choice. You know, I think a little bit under the radar, there's a couple of other guys that I wanted to mention. Um, I think Kevin Stefanski is a little bit under the radar. They do have some talent there, uh, but that place has been a complete mess. And they've had the wrong mix in there before, and it's gotten sideways and been messy. Stefanski's like boring in a good way. He's just come in and calmed down the place. I mean, it's not, we're not talking about them being off the rails and having 17 penalties and, and uh, out of control. I think he has come in there, provided some structure. They're also a five and three team. And they're not uh, a team that's being talked about for the wrong reasons. So I'm anxious to see how he does over the second half of the season. I think as we look for the second half of the season, to me, that's where Flores has already shown his medal. Look at last year. Right. Last year, people were talking about the tanking Dolphins. And right. they were on a historically bad pace for the first half of the season in terms of point differential. They were going to be one of the worst teams we've ever seen. And we were. I was pulling out. Uh, research about the 1976 Bucks. Remember, John McKay was the coach. They asked him what he thought about the execution of his team. He said he was in favor of it. <laughs> it was pretty, <laughs> yeah, one of the right. all-time great quotes. But that's how bad they were going to be. And we were talking about integrity of the game. And if you watch them over the second half of last season, they flipped it completely around. And they were a pretty good team by the second half. Then what happens this year? That doesn't carry over always. I mean, we see lots of teams finish strong. Uh, you know, Atlanta finished strong last year. And they come in this year, they're 0-5. Mm-hmm. What about Brian Flores' team? They come in this year, they're 5-3. and three. They did they did sustain it with an offseason that was unlike any other, uh, with, you know, Ryan Fitzpatrick, a quarterback, with an unknown Tua coming off of an injury where you're really not sure. People talk about they had the bye week to get him ready. Bull. I mean, yeah. the, the, you know, you're hardly practicing at all. I, I think it was a gutsy decision. Yeah, no doubt. And for them to be in this position now, we'll see how Tua plays, but I liked how he played against Arizona, you know, last week. So I'm with you on him all the way. You know, something that I wanted you to expand on, because we've talked about this before, just about coaches, is you said something about the first half of the season being about players and the second half about coaches. What do you mean by that? And what? how should we apply it to this year? Well, it's always a player's league. Don't get me wrong. But I do think in the second half of seasons, especially in the NFL, you have a uh, a coach has a chance to affect the game more. There's more to study. There's more tendencies. There's more adjustments. There's more blueprints that have been laid out by other teams, per se, on how to defend and, and how to attack. So there's a lot more information that these coaches can take into account for the second half of the season. And I see a bunch of coaches now this year who are going to have to make these adjustments. And like you said, Brian Flores has already made some of his, but there's a group of another coaches, a bunch of them that are going to have to show that they can make these adjustments and move their teams forward after a lackluster first half. Matt and I'm talking Nagy. about yeah, Matt <laughs> Nagy, I'm talking about Anthony Lynn, I'm talking about Matt Patricia. These kind of guys, you know, and I think they're good coaches, but they've got to show and take take the, you know, 
bull by the horns and show that they can make adjustments, that they can make a difference. And I just haven't seen the differences that they've been able to make at this point. But again, we've got eight games to go. So I agree. I think these coaches uh, have a chance to have the spotlight on them a little more in the second half of the season for good or for worse. Yeah, but let's talk about some of those guys because, you know, to me, Matt Nagy's come in there and he's got this offensive system that he wants to run. Where's the adjustment in tailing it to your team? Uh, haven't haven't seen that at all. I don't I don't expect a, a good outcome there offensively. They may be good enough defensively to be, you know, in the mix anyway, but I think that's a concern. Um, Anthony Lynn, as far as managing the game and all that, how do you have 17-point leads and lose them every week? I mean, that's just brutal. And for him, you know, he comes out and says – well, um, you know, I've never been through a season like this. Well, yeah, you have to control that part of it. That that can't happen um, week after week. I think another one that's going to be interesting in the second half of the year uh, is Bruce Arians. That loss by them to New Orleans felt like a final verdict, and there's a whole half season to go. Maybe they're going to be fine, but uh, there's a lot going on there in terms of Brady. Now you bring Antonio Brown into it. You got Gronkowski. That is a good situation to be in because you do have talent and you have a decent record, but it's also going to be a challenging one that I think we're going to find out even about a, a veteran coach like him. Um, you know, if they don't make the playoffs or if it kind of unravels, that's going to really go on his record as having had this perceived great opportunity. Right. Wasted, blown. A prime example of what I just mentioned, in my opinion, Mike, is is the way that Saints have came after the Bucks in their two games. Have they given a blueprint to everybody else? You know, they pressured Tom Brady and they came at him up the gut, really, in pressure in his face. And older quarterbacks do not like that pressure in their face, I'm telling you. And they've been able to expose some some warts on Tom in the two games that they've had. Now, will others be able to do that? I don't know. But like you say, that's up to Bruce Aarons to figure that out and and come up with a plan to firm up that pocket in, in, in a way that Tom feels comfortable back there. So, yeah, there's a lot of adjusting that these coaches have to make. And you mentioned Matt Nagy. I think that's a struggle because they've shown no ability to adjust. This has been a two-year, if not longer, proposition to kind of fit their offense with their personnel. And when I watch them on tape, I still see, you know, them doing the same things regardless of who the quarterback is, but not putting his players in a, in a great position to succeed. You know, their offensive line is not good, let's face it, and they're not very athletic. But we're when you watch them on offense, they're pulling guards when guards aren't athletic enough to pull. They're not picking up blitzes correctly. They're still making the same mistakes. They're they're trying to trick people into a running game because they can't knock anybody back at all. So they use multiple motions and shifts. And guess what? They jump off sides two times, you know. So they're, they're their own worst enemy. That is a ship that has to be settled on calmer seas. And I just don't know that the personnel is going to allow them to do it. That's, you know, again, an example of these coaches that are going to have to start making some decisions, that uh, some adjustments that matter. So, you know, one last thing on the on the coaching stuff here, you know, for Coach of the Year. Raheem Morris is winning the games now that he's taken over for Dan Quinn. And, and I think they, last year when they made him the defensive, kind of put him in charge of the defense, they went from being one of the five or ten worst defenses to being one of the statistically five or ten best defenses. Uh, this year out of the gates, they're 0-5, but now they go to Raheem Morris. I like Raheem Morris. I actually think that he uh, – checks boxes for me in that he's been a head coach before he's had time to sort of learn about it. he's worked on both sides of the ball I think if you've been around him 
he's really impressive. I mean, right away you get the feeling that I want to follow this guy or this is a leader. This is somebody that uh, can command a room, command a locker room. You don't get that feeling necessarily right off the bat with Matt Nagy or some of these um, other guys. So I got a sort of a two-part question for you. If you were the Falcons, would you be looking for a total reset outside the building? Look, Raheem's been here. He's been part of the even part of the problem when we weren't winning. Um, or would you strongly consider him? And then outside of that, if you were a different team, would you consider him? I would. I, I just I just sort of like what he's about, and I think there's evidence that he can affect change. Um, how would you be doing that if you were Rustin Webster or Rich McKay, one of those guys in the front offices for, for Atlanta? Yeah, I would agree with that. They know him well, too, because both those guys you just mentioned uh, came from Tampa where Raheem uh, kind of put down his roots. Um, I do think – He's been able to steady the ship with very little change. Like you said, it's just a changed voice. It's a changed leader. People are in line behind him, but I do think he has simplified things even more on defense to try to help with their pass coverage, which has been, gosh, only only worse by Seattle's defense that we've already talked about. So the fact that he is a former head coach that has already a learning curve. He's already down that road a ways. He had that experience to, to chew on. I definitely think he will get consideration, if not from the Falcons, from somebody else. The other thing is when you talk specifically about the Falcons is you've got an older quarterback. You've got an, an offense that's already pretty good. So you might want to minimize some change a little bit if you can. I do think they're going to hire a, a general manager. And, and if I was them, I'd hire a veteran guy as well to to kind of lean and help the whole process. In other words, not not to totally rebuild. Sometimes a, a new face in the front office that's a decision maker wants to make everything his, you know, put his stamp on everything. I think in this case, you're going to have to, I think it's important to hire a non-ego guy, a guy that's not looking for credit, that can kind of just steady the ship along with Raheem. They could have a good combination of people there. We've already talked about it being a good spot from from the top on down with Arthur Blank and and uh, Rich McKay. So I do think you're on to something there. And I do think if they continue, obviously, uh, at the rate they're going, he's going to get uh, some attention from around the league as well. Yeah, and the only bad thing he's got going for him is look at this schedule for Atlanta. (laughs) Saints, Raiders, Saints, Chargers, Tampa, Chiefs, Tampa. (laughs) So, Raheem, good luck to you. If you can navigate this schedule down the stretch, you deserve that job. Let's give him a uh, a (laughs) four-year deal. He will have earned it, though, right? (laughs) He he will have earned it. But, yeah, he's someone I would keep an eye on, you know, and I think – uh, this next off season is going to, there's going to be a lot of attention on the hiring process anyway. I mean, certainly from a minority standpoint, there is. And uh, that's been an area that the league's been trying to address. And to me, uh, Raheem Morris is somebody who just checks a lot of the boxes, has affected change. And, and it may not, it may or may not come in Atlanta, but that to me, that's somebody to keep an eye on. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Randy, I'm keeping an eye as we move into our pick segment here on three games. By the way, we do have to come clean on last week. We both took Seattle, actually, to win at <laughs> Buffalo. So when Sean McDermott was in the locker room saying, yelling to his team, they doubted us. Sean, it wasn't just talk. It wasn't just <laughs> you trying to spin it for your team. We did doubt you, and we apologize for that because you made us look stupid. Uh, great win for them. Chicago and Tennessee, Randy, I took Chicago with the points. You took Tennessee. You came out ahead, even with the late flurry. The Bears, man, taught me a lesson there, uh, taking them. We also both took Baltimore and gave the points, and we came out and we won that one against uh, the Colts. This week, Randy, in Week 10, we've got three games we want to help pick for people, and they're not necessarily easy ones. Buffalo at Arizona, Cardinals by to what say you? Well, again, I I don't want to Sean McDermott to think we're doubting him because I don't think Seattle on the road was a bad choice. They had won 10 straight in Eastern time zone and there was a lot of merit to, to why I thought they'd do well again. Unfortunately, it's going to be the same for me this week with Buffalo going to Arizona. I think Arizona is desperate. I think they lost a tough one last week. I think they're going to come back with a little more oomph in their tank. I just think in the second half of NFL seasons, I've found over the years that the most desperate team ends up winning more times than not. I think Arizona is trying to stay in the playoff hunt. I think Buffalo has is coming off a big win. They might be a little more fat and happy per se. Um, I'm going with Arizona. I like the way they're playing on both sides of the ball. They were a, a one play away from from beating the Dolphins last week. I love Kyler Murray. I think he and I'm not looking for five nine quarterbacks, but gosh, is he fun to watch? And I think that's going to bring an element that people are going to have to figure out a total different way to defend him. I'm with Arizona on this one, Mike, and I'm giving the two points. Wow, you almost talked me into it, Randy. I'm gonna. <laughs> you almost talked me into it. Here's my, my thinking on this game: is I have a hard time picking between the two, and so I'll just take whatever team I can get the points with. And so I would take uh, Buffalo with a couple of points and, and and see how it goes. But you make a compelling case, and Buff and Arizona to me is kind of deceptively good in all three phases. They're, if you kind of look at them statistically, they're better than you think on defense, on special teams. We, we focus on Kyler Murray, but there's a lot to like about this team. And if Seattle's not careful, Arizona could win that division. So uh, I think you make a really compelling case. And by the way, Arizona's already beaten Seattle. So I could be wrong on this one, but I think Buffalo's got one more game to go into the bye week. I'm buying Sean McDermott's speech to the team. Let's get one more here. I think that Josh Allen has scares me a little less. I mean, he still can make some bad decisions, but he's really gotten some good production this year. And so I think this is going to be another fun uh, matchup between two young, not entirely consistent, but productive quarterbacks. So I'll Go Buffalo in the points. Yeah, Seattle's at the Rams, and the Rams are favored by two. I'm going to put you on the. I'm going to put you on the spot again, Randy. I'm going to let you go first because 
I'm a little worried for Seattle. I, I think I think I, Sean I can't McVay's, imagine why. <laughs> I think Sean McVay is looking at that tape. I hate to go against Russell Wilson, but yeah. I don't know if I can trust that defense. Sean McVay is one of the best at coming up with a game plan that works on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, that may change completely the next week. So I give him credit. He'll do whatever he has to do to win the game, whether it's run the ball 30 times or throw the ball 50 times. And I think this is going to be another indicator of that. This is a giant game for the Rams. The Rams, and it, it sounds obvious because the, them in Seattle have the best records, but this is a big game for the Rams. And, and they it's a home game against their heated division rival, um, I think they find a way to do it. I'm scared really about the defense. I don't know how Seattle fixes it overnight. They can't change philosophies, I don't think. I think that's going to be a struggle. And I just don't know that they can slow the Rams down enough. I like the Rams defense. I mean, they have probably the best defensive player in the league in Aaron Donald. I think they'll find enough ways to, to cover those receivers, um, of Seattle. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking the, t- Given the two points and taking the Rams on this one as well. Another home favorite, but uh, I'm with the Rams on this one. God, you know, and I I can't believe I'm going to do that. I I think I'm going to be with you because uh, in the past when Seattle has played the Rams, they have pounded the ball down the Rams' throat. And they ran at Aaron Donald and they ran when they had Ndamukong Sue. They had some games where they had 200-plus yards rushing. That's not the type of team Seattle is. And instead, Seattle's going to be playing against the strength of the Rams, which is pass defense. They got Jalen Ramsey. They got him worked in. They got uh, Aaron Donald. Now, I don't like going against Russell Wilson uh, because he may win the game anyway. And I think with Seattle blitzing, that's not what Jared Goff likes. I mean, we've seen some – if you can get after Jared Goff and get some pressure on him, I think he can he can wilt in the game, and we saw that happen a little bit to some degree against Miami. And so I'm very anxious, anxious to see what Seattle does in this game. Russell Wilson coming off a four-turnover game, I think they're going to get a good game from him. I think that he's going to um, step it up some, but I, I have a hard time um, riding with them in this matchup, and so I think they're going to have to – to prove it. Our last game is Minnesota at Chicago. We talked about last week, you know, which one of these teams would you rather be uh, kind of moving forward? And maybe our answer's coming into focus here as as Minnesota yeah. kind of looks better. Minnesota is favored. Is it Minnesota favored by two and a half at Chicago? That's correct. Yep. Wow. No respect for that home field <laughs> advantage with no fans. Who you got? I got I got Minnesota all the way. I believe in what Minnesota's doing. I think you're seeing right now the Vikings are a team <clears throat> that we thought we would see at the start of the season. We obviously uh, didn't see that team for the first month, and now we're starting to see it. They're running the ball. They're doing some things offensively with Cousins that he can do. I like where the Vikings are. I don't think the Vikings are out of this uh, race in their division yet. I think they're going to prove that this week, and I think they'll beat the Bears, in in my opinion, handily. Uh, I see why they are favored. Um, I just don't think the Bears – I'm not buying the Bears in any way, and it's a shame because – their defense is putting up a top five effort uh, for for a season long defense, and and they're, I don't think at the end of the day they're going to have much to show for it. I'm with you, and I hate I hate doing this because like last week I picked Chicago and was wrong, and so now you go against them, they'll probably rally with some amazing plan and shut down, uh, you know, shut down the Vikings. But I'm sort of with you. I just don't feel like. Chicago's got enough going offensively right now, even against a bad, not great. Minnesota defense. Look, Minnesota's beaten Green Bay and Detroit in 
back-to-back weeks. That's good enough for me yeah. uh, to, to give the two and a half and just, you know, see, let the chips fall where they may. Randy, our final segment, Ask the GM, is always a fun one, especially when we get good questions. And we do have a good question from Jared this week uh, about Baker Mayfield. And the nice thing about Ask the GM, Randy, is they can ask the question and we can answer it however we want. So we're going <laughs> to give an answer, but we're going to also expand on the subject. And Jared's question about the Cleveland Browns was really about Baker Mayfield and specifically what he would have to do for them not to consider taking it's a quarterback in the, the draft. GM. There's some interesting layers to that type of a question. I know this got your attention. What do you think about Jared's thought on Cleveland, Mayfield, how they should proceed right. in team building in general? We've talked about this specific topic a couple times during podcasts already this year. And in Baker Mayfield's case, we know the Browns have to make a decision on that fifth-year option here at some point. I think the question for the Browns is, is this the kind of offense that we want to run? If it is, and if this is what Kevin Stefanski uh, projected when he took the job as the kind of system he was going to put in, Baker Mayfield stands a chance to be that guy. If if he wants to run something totally different, I think he's going to have to find a totally different quarterback because I think we know what Baker Mayfield is. We know his limitations. We know his strengths. The second half of the season is about if he can be consistent enough for me. I think the consistency, the, the body of work that he's starting to build on, there's something there. Is he a franchise quarterback? Probably not. Has he made enough throws to run this offense? I think so if the running game goes with it. There's a lot of, like you said, angles to this because you also got to consider the options you have. You know, what's going to be available for quarterbacks in free agency? What's going to be available in the draft? Do we want to project uh, that far ahead and, and make a decision like that that we may not see the fruits of for four or five years. That's a hard spot to put a, a coach in. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. I think the Baker Mayfield experiment per se uh, is still uh, out there to be answered. Well, to me, the issue comes to a head because you have to exercise the fifth year option on them and the price tag for that's going to be 25, 30 million bucks. Once you do yeah. that, you box yourself in, Randy. You say, not only is he our guy, but but we're going to pay him at the expense of other things on our roster. For one I, year. You got to pay him for one year, right? Yeah, yeah. You pay him for one yeah. year, but that yeah. also then sets the value of any long-term deal, right? And I'm not a huge fan of just using the option, uh, you know, unless you don't have another option at the position, why would you want to have 25, are you going to take a 25 to $30 million flyer on Baker Mayfield? You better feel pretty good about him to me. I think Stefanski's in a good situation where it wasn't his guy, it's not his decision. He doesn't have to do that if he doesn't want it. If he wants to go in another direction, um, I think he should consider it. And I, I would be leaning towards that because I think his system does minimize the quarterback. You know, I think that's why, uh, that's why Kyle Shanahan who runs a similar type of an offense, was like, yeah, I wouldn't mind having Kirk Cousins, right? Well, who says that? No, no one really is like, <laughs> nothing against Kirk Cousins. I mean, he's a good right. pro quarterback, but you know that, that was the guy he would have probably wanted to have, right? That's the guy that Minnesota does have with the offense they're running where Stefanski was. So to me, if you can minimize the position and not have... Uh, you know, not have $30 million invested in somebody who's just a guy to you... Um, then do that. I also would like to have, uh, as I watch these other quarterbacks around the league, Baker Mayfield's not adding the way Kyler Murray or Justin Herbert or um, some of these guys utter are with his ability to have the second play that you can't defend. You know what right. I mean? 
to and, uh, all these young guys. Yeah. Yeah. And if I'm Josh Allen, even like, what's the elite trait of Mayfield? Right. What's the trait that makes me want to pay him $30 million a year? Is it that he's an amazing leader who really brings our team together? I don't think it's that. Is it yeah. that he is, like you say, the pockets for him? That we're going to evolve, and when it, when we pay him, and it falls off on defense, maybe Odell's not part of the picture. He's going to be able to to win from the pocket for us. No, doesn't check that right. box. Okay, if he's not that, then if the play breaks down, can he? Is there a running element? Is there an amazing playmaking ability? No. Right. So what is it about him that's worth thirty million a year? Other than we don't have another guy. There's nothing. Especially when you consider the price you got to pay. Yeah, that's you know, what like I'm saying. Say, so. Yeah, thirty million a year. You better have something special to bring it to the table. And I agree with you. That's that's a struggle from what we've seen so far. And the only way teams can justify making that decision on a player like him, to me, is we took him number one overall. We'll throw that out. Yeah, it doesn't. That, matter. They didn't right. take him. Plus, Stefanski, this guy didn't take him number one. Stefanski didn't take him number one yeah. overall. So I think he could really. This is a big decision for Stefanski and them in the early stages of this. And. To me, none of the boxes are checked on why I would pay uh, a tiny, tiny money for him other than we don't know who the other guy is going to be. Well, we can get another guy to do that, right? Because this, this quarterback isn't elevating. He's not differentiating. Randy, you do elevate. You do differentiate <laughs> this podcast. It's been another uh, fun week. You can find me, Mike Sando, Senior Writer of The Athletic, on Twitter at Sando NFL. You can find Randy, former exec of the year, at Randy Mueller underscore Hit us with the questions. We love to answer them. We love this conversation every week. We hope you do too. We will see you next time.